late. <laughs> this is what I call a good audience. Uh, I'm not going to uh, regale you with what happened since uh, 8 o'clock this morning, my time, which is because uh, I want to forget it myself. Uh, and I also, I'm not sure how to do this exactly. I think it seems to me that in view of the, uh, you know, lateness of the hour, it would make sense if you're willing to do what I often do do in places that I go to a lot uh, and where they're used to it. And that is just dispense with the talk and start in with the discussion, which is always a lot more interesting and is more keyed to your interests. I mean, I could start talking about any number of things, but uh, since it's late and, you know, we've, uh, we want to get right to the heart of things, uh, why don't you suggest what we ought to talk about? Let's talk about whether we're going to have another Cuba invasion. Another Cuba invasion? Uh, I don't think so, uh, for a number of reasons. The main reason is that uh, uh, the guys who, uh, I mean, the, the, the American business community is not in favor of it at this point. Uh, and they have plenty of clout. Now, you know, it's conceivable that jingoist fanaticism will overwhelm, you know, sort of uh, uh, the interest of those who really run the country. Uh, but I, it doesn't look likely. I mean, they, what's happening in the case of Cuba is kind of like what happened in the case of Vietnam. Uh, the uh, the U.S. policy toward Cuba or Vietnam or Nicaragua is completely understandable. I mean, you simply have to think in terms of, uh, say, some neighborhood in uh, Chicago or maybe Vancouver, uh, where the local mafia don uh, is running the thing, and some storekeeper says he's not going to pay his protection money. His protection money. Well, you don't just you send your goons in and you get the money, but you don't stop there. You got to break his legs or kill him or, you know, make sure that other people understand that that's not the kind of thing you do. Uh, and that's what's been driving U.S. policy. It's what drove U.S. I mean, the U.S. had basically won the war in Vietnam by the early 70s in any reasonable sense. But uh, uh, they didn't get maximal goals, but they got the main ones. Uh, but uh, you have to show other people in the neighborhood that uh, that's not the way you behave. Uh, so you have to really torture them. Uh, and they continued to torture them as long as they could, one excuse after another, each excuse more ridiculous than the last one, uh, until something happened. Uh, other people in the neighborhood stopped being intimidated uh, and started going in, and you know, the Japanese slowly moved in, and then the Europeans slowly moved in, and pretty soon the American business community, uh, it, things got to the point where they recognized that, well, it's kind of useful and maybe even fun to torture people and kick them in the face, uh, it's much more important to make money. Uh, and when you pass, there comes a sort of transition point when you switch, and when that transition point came, all of a sudden it turned out that Vietnam was being forthcoming on the MIAs and making great progress in human rights and so on and so forth, uh, so therefore American businesses could go in and get their, their share of the take. Uh, and that's pretty much what's happening in the case of Cuba, I think. Uh, I've got a suggestion. Uh, we're constantly being bombarded by... Uh, Is somebody talking Yeah, I'm making a, Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. We're Over constantly there. being bombarded uh, by the, uh, the media. It's almost, it's almost a complete 
uh, and total one line, and that is, we have to pay back our debt. I'm sure you're having the same thing in your mm -hmm. country. There's the same thing in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe. Uh, I, you know, rarely in my life, and I'm over 50 now, have I seen such a universal, you know, chorus that has, you know, no dissenting voices. And I wondered if you might it's comment on that. that. Yeah, it's not true that there's no dissenting. I mean, I, you well, have, I, I don't want to talk about Canada. You, have, you know, you know much more than me. But let me talk about the United States. Uh, where there is, is a dissenting voice, like you know, the overwhelming majority of the population, and you see that right now. Uh, simply have a look at what's going on in the primaries. Uh, a couple of months, up to a few months ago, uh, the top priority for both political parties was getting rid of the deficit and you know, uh, uh, get balancing the budget and so on. That was the top priority for both parties. The only difference was whether you do it in you know, seven years and, or seven years and two months or something like that. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the government kept being closed down over this for a couple of months. I w and in the press, you know, headline, got a balance of budget, Americans voted for a balanced budget and so on. Uh, anybody who had been looking at the polls knew that this was total nonsense. The public was overwhelmingly opposed to this on any realistic grounds. Uh, it, if you asked, I mean, in fact, if you looked at the polls, they were always kind of, they had two kind of questions. Uh, there was one question for the headline writers, and that question was, um, would you like to have a balanced budget? And on that, everybody says yes. I mean, I would say yes. It's like asking, would you like to have your household debts uh, magically removed? Sure. You know. Uh, but then when people were asked, would you like to have a balanced budget if, and then comes any realistic assumption, you know, cuts in education or health or environmental protection or you name it, it quickly became overwhelmingly no. Uh, and uh, you couldn't, so the, the first question was for the guys who write the headlines or on national public radio and so on, but the questions down at the bottom, uh, they were for the people who have to keep their finger on the public pulse, uh, like the public relations industry and the propaganda system and everyone else. They have to know what people are thinking. You know, you're going to try to control minds, you have to know where they are. Uh, so, there is, so if you look at polls carefully, they give you a pretty realistic picture, I mean, as much as can be done of... Uh, because the business community needs to know that. Uh, and it was very clear what, what uh, the attitudes were. So contrary to what you're saying, uh, outside of elite circles, the articulate intellectuals, the political class, and so on, uh, most people were opposed to it. And on very solid, and you can see that right now as soon as the primary started. The minute the primary started and people had to face the voters, the budget disappeared. Nobody's talking about it. Take a look at any of the campaigns. It is never mentioned. And the reason that it's never mentioned is, well, you know, these guys have to face angry voters, so they better talk about something else, not what they're doing. In fact, nothing that they're doing ever reaches the voters. If, if you compare the campaign that's going on now with the congressional, you know, the Gingrich army proposals, they, they don't even overlap. There's no contact between them. Uh, and the budget is one dramatic example of this. It takes a lot of discipline for uh, journalists and others not to notice this and to see what it means. Uh, but, you know, there's been a, like a sea change within, as soon as the primary season started, the budget dropped off the screen. Uh, and uh, you, you, you might ask a different question. Uh, who's right? You know, there's a question of fact, like is it important to balance the budget? So who's right, the instincts of the general population or the business community? 
which does want to do it. But of course, they want to do it for very simple reasons. Balancing the budget is a weapon against social spending. So that's kind of irrelevant, you know. But if you ask about the, I mean, it's very, it's not even hidden. You know, uh, they're not, for example, all the, all the talk about the budget balancing, uh, some parts of the budget are going up. In fact, two parts are going up pretty fast, in fact. Uh, one is the Pentagon. Uh, the Pentagon budget is at basically Cold War levels. Actually, it's higher than it was under Nixon. Uh, and there's no Russians around. Uh, so that tells you how seriously they took the Russian threat. Uh, but uh, it's going up, and it's going up under pressure from the far right. Uh, the Heritage Foundation, you know, Gingrich Republicans and so on, they want it to go up. Uh, the public has an attitude on that too. The public is opposed to that by about six to one. Uh, but the difference between public attitudes and public policy, which is always significant, has just become like a chasm. Uh, the, so that's one thing that's going up. The other thing that's going up is uh, the other aspect. Instantly, that's going up because it's a the, the main function of the Pentagon, its main domestic function, has always been to transfer public funds to um, high-tech industry. Like, that's how my salary gets paid, to be honest. Uh, it, MIT is part of that funnel where I work. It's part of the funnel by which the public unwittingly pays the costs of high-tech industry. Uh, and uh, the whole of the modern economy, if you look through it, is crucially based on this. Uh, so the Pentagon has to not only stay, but in fact go up. Uh, the other part of the federal budget that's going up, state budgets too, is the other part of the security system, jails. Uh, the uh, crime hasn't changed in about 20 years, at least if you can believe the FBI. Uh, but the perception of crime has gone, has changed radically, and that's propaganda. Uh, that's, you can, you, I mean, it's the effect of propaganda to try to make people, crime is serious, but you know, it's no more serious than it was 30 years ago. Uh, and the people who are scared are not the ones who are harmed by it. Crime mostly harms the poor. It's mostly poor people harming each other, and they're not the ones who are saying, let's build more jails. Uh, the, the propaganda about crime, like the propaganda about drugs, is a technique of population control. For one thing, it targets a superfluous population. It targets people you want to get rid of, uh, like the kind of people who in, say, Colombia, you send the death squads after. They're kind of superfluous. Uh, so, and it, in fact, it's very carefully shaped the whole crime story to attack black males uh, primarily. So if you look at the population of black males, they're being devastated by by this, and it was specifically targeted for them. There's virtually no doubt about it. Uh, so on the one hand, it has that effect. And, and the race-class correlation is close enough, it's not perfect, but it's close enough in the United States that you're all also going after poor working people this way, people you really don't want around, like, you know, the people you send out to the, into the desert or kill or something in less civilized countries than ours. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, so while crime is, and the other thing it's doing is scaring everybody else. Well, that's a technique of population control. If you're kicking people in the face, and you're harming them, and most people are getting harmed by social policy, you want them to think about something else. Uh, and want, you want to be afraid of something, like, like the Jews or the homosexuals or somebody or other. Everybody hits the same technique, because there aren't a lot of techniques around. Uh, and in this case, one way of terrifying the population is crime. Uh, the other is crazed Arabs and you know, all sorts of other things, but crime right at home is, is a good one. Uh, so since 1980, around, if you go back to 1980, 
the U.S. was kind of at the high end of the industrial world in incarceration, but now it's off the spectrum. Uh, it, the, uh, during the Reagan years, the number of prisoners tripled uh, without any change in the crime rate, uh, and under uh, Bush and Clinton, it's been, and now it's going up even faster. Uh, we long ago left South Africa behind. Uh, Russia was left behind a long time ago. Actually, Russia caught up for a while after the reforms started, and it began to understand how to behave. But now we've passed Russia again. Uh, and it's, we're just off the scale in terms of per capita incarceration, and it's still going up. Uh, well, that's... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, this has a lot, uh, uh, that has a lot of effect. I mean, it's gotten to this. It's gotten to the point where, incidentally, crime rates in the United States are not particularly. Uh, they're high, but not unusually high. So, if you compare the United States with other industrial countries, uh, again, the U.S. is kind of at the high end, but not. It, it, actually, I don't even think it's first in any. In, in there's one crime in which the United States really is totally by itself, and that's. Uh, uh, homicide with guns, but that has nothing to do with crime. You know that's because uh, of the crazy gun culture. Uh, but uh, so, like if there's a domestic, where it would be domestic, uh, you know, like a domestic uh, problem in some other country ends up somebody getting murdered in the United States because there are guns all over the place. But if you take that aside, you look at you know robberies, rapes, uh, you know car thefts or whatever. The U.S. is at the high end, but not unusually so. Uh, on the other hand, the rate of incarceration, which was not very different from other industrial countries around 1980, is now radically different. And that's a, another, that's really a reflection of social policy. It's kind of comparable to the fact that, say, inequality in the U.S., was, which was at the high end of the industrial world, but in the spectrum around 1980, is now off the scale. Uh, all these things are aspects of the same kinds of social policy. Uh, now, why, why, uh, the, the uh, security system is going up very fast. Uh, you hear a lot of talk about, uh, I'm a little off your topic, but I'll get back to it. You hear a lot of talk about how uh, uh, if, if you project health expenses, it'll bankrupt the country. Well, you know, that's mostly nonsense. But the fact is, if you want to play that game, if you project prison building, that'll bankrupt the country even faster. In fact, the Rand Corporation did a study a year or two ago in which they pointed out that at the rate at which California was uh, imprisoning people by some, I don't know, year 2000 or something like that, uh, they would have nothing left in the state budget for education. Everything would have to be going to prisons. Uh, and that's the kind of projection you get. Well, let's come back. Oh, why is this going on? Well, it's kind of like the Pentagon. Uh, for one thing, it has a, it has a, a function it does have the function of use of force. I mean, in the case of the Pentagon, you know, it keeps the world under control. In the case of the security system, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like social cleansing in Colombia, as well as controlling the rest of the population by frightening them. But like the Pentagon, it has another function. Uh, it is a significant, by now, rather significant Keynesian stimulus for the economy. I mean, it's gotten uh, to the point where. Uh, uh, Areas, their rural counties, which is where most of the prisons goes, are competing for prisons uh, because it, you know, money for the construction industry and the security guard is the fast was maybe still is the fastest growing uh, uh, white collar profession in the United States. Plus, there's big money involved. 
the uh, 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 running, a, a, uh, they're getting privatized, and running a federal prison uh, it, it can be very lucrative. I mean, some of these companies are now, you know, quite wealthy. Uh, in fact, it's gotten to the point where even high-tech industry is noticing. Uh, they figure they may have another scam alongside the Pentagon to feed off public funds. So it got to the point where the Wall Street Journal about it, two years ago or so had an article discussing the opportunities for high-tech industry to uh, get into the security business. You know, you implant electrodes and people and you have supercomputers uh, having them under surveillance and so on. It's not crazier than, you know, shooting down missiles in outer space or something like that. These are all kind of covers for getting new technology funded. And while this is nowhere near the scale of the Pentagon, it's noticeable. Uh, the big investment firms like Merrill Lynch and so on are uh, floating tax-free bonds for prison construction. So it's part of, it's into big business. So here's two parts. These are the two parts of the state system, which are in fact growing, which again tells you something about how much they want to balance the budget. Well, the budget balancing is, has to be very carefully honed. It has to be used as a weapon against any part of the government system that goes to other than the rich. The part that goes to the rich, that goes up. You know, or the part that's there for population control, that part of the budget goes up. Well, coming back to the first question, who's right from an economic point of view about the effect, about balancing the budget? Like, just how important is it? Should, should one think it's an important thing to do? The public thinks it isn't. Uh, the business world thinks it is, but for reasons that are irrelevant. Uh, I mean, irrelevant on economic grounds, at least. But if you ask on economic grounds, is it the right thing to do, what's the answer? Well, first of all, a qualification has to be made right off. On any such question, almost nobody knows anything. So almost everything that's said is guesswork. Uh, any honest economist will tell you that if you tell him the answer you want, he'll construct a model to give you that answer. Uh, and uh, it, uh, uh, within a pretty big range. Uh, and in fact, most, most of these things are sort of large, I mean, there is some knowledge, but a large part of it is historical evidence and, you know, sort of judgment questions and so on. So whose judgment is right? Well, there's some, first of all, is the, take say the United States, is the, uh, uh, is the debt high? Well, not by historical standards. Uh, in fact, it's about what it was in the late 50s, uh, and considerably less relative to GNP, GDP, you know, the national economy, which is the only relevant measure. It's less than it was, uh, say, in the early 50s. In fact, it's, it's much less than it was during the biggest growth period uh, after World War II. And historically, that's about what it's been. Uh, the U.S. has always run a big debt. Uh, that's, it kept turning over, it used the debt to invest and pay off the debt through growth and also cutting it back through inflation. Uh, since uh, up until, uh, throughout the whole 19th century, during the really big growth periods, the U.S. had very high, higher debt than it has now. Uh, so, so you can't argue that somehow the debt is out of sight. I mean, it did grow very fast during the Reagan years. In fact, most of the debt is Reagan debt. Uh, but that was, again, uh, to cut social spending. Uh, and it's substantial because of the Reagan years, but not by historical standards, certainly not out of line by historical standards. In fact, 
I think the U.S. deficit, deficit is not debt, remember, uh, the U.S. deficit is now the lowest in the OECD relative to the economy. Uh, it's right alongside Japan, I forget which one's lower, but the U.S. and Japan, I think, are the two lowest in, in the industrial world relative to the economy. Uh, so it's not, you know, not, no major, you know, it's like some catastrophe or something. Uh, it's well within historical range and not even noticeable particularly. Uh, furthermore, there's also evidence about the effect of running deficits. Uh, there have been a couple of times, I think about half a dozen times in American history when there has been an attempt to balance the budget. And in fact, every single one of them has led pretty quickly to either recession or a deep depression. Uh, on the other hand, there, here it gets tricky, but there are some studies, the only studies that have been done, as far as I know, most of them done by an economist named Robert Eisner at uh, Northwestern, uh, where, which have been attempts to estimate, to try to work out the effect of a deficit on things like investment, growth, uh, uh, you know, anything you can measure. It turns out there's a, not huge, but somewhat positive effect to running deficits. And the reason is not very surprising. After all, every business runs deficits all the time. Every business is in debt. Every household is in debt. Uh, everything that functions is in debt all the time. Uh, you're in debt because you're trying to, you know, to do something. Now, of course, if you use, the debt is neither good nor bad. I mean, if you use the debt to, you know, gamble at Las Vegas, it was a bad debt. If you use the debt to, uh, you know, to send your kids to college or, uh, you know, buy a car or start a business or something, then it can be a good debt, okay, from the point of view of economic gain and uh, other things. Uh, it depends what you do with it. And if the, if the borrowing is used intelligent, for example, if, bar if government borrowing goes into building infrastructure and improving education and uh, health and so on, so there's a more viable society down the road, uh, there'll also be more growth, more income, you pay off the debt. Uh, that's what matters. Uh, what matters is wise investment in people's lives and the way they live and what's produced and so on and so forth. And of course, wise investment is going to, is going to involve debt. Uh, public spending is in fact a major way in which the any economy grows, in a, sometimes in a healthy way, sometimes in a destructive way, it depends what you do with it. So as far as we know, at least, there's nothing, there's no big imperative about cutting the debt. I mean, obviously, it, it depends, despite the Reagan years, which did, you know, I mean, they did turn the United States very quickly from the world's biggest creditor into the world's biggest debtor very fast. Uh, but that was because of a combination of massive uh, spending, the massive state spending and uh, uh, tremendous borrow. There, there was kind of like a borrow and spend abandon in the Reagan years. Uh, and mainly, as David Stockman said right at the beginning, the, there's no secret, the uh, head of the budget, because if they figured if they get deep enough into debt, they'll be a straitjacket and they'll be able to kill social spending. Well, okay, if that's your goal, then that's a good thing. And if you can use uh, cutting the debt to achieve that goal, then that's fine. Uh, but for the general population, that doesn't make any sense at all. And even on narrow economic grounds, it's very dubious that it makes any sense, probably harmful on, narrow econo on the narrowest economic grounds. Now, different 
you know, in, in Canada, the answer to, to that may be different. Remember, the, the, take, take the talk about how the debt is a burden on future generations. Well, in the United States, that's simply not true. The debt is mostly owned by Americans, uh, which means that the payments on the debt stay right in the country. Now, it may have a redistributive effect, like it's probably the case, although even this is pretty hard to show because of pension funds and everything else. Uh, but it's, you know, you'd guess that it's the case that richer people hold more of the debt than poorer people, proportional income. But if that's true, then the debt will indeed have a redistributive effect, in fact, a regressive redistributive effect, although even that's challenged. But, if it, but, uh, but that you take care of by other means, like, say, more progressive taxation. So those are not big social problems. I mean, there's, there's nothing unworkable about the social problems. Uh, the debt does, the, the payment on the debt just stays, almost all stays inside the country, just gets reshuffled around and reshuffled around in complicated ways. Uh, so there's, there's no burden on future generations. I mean, the burden on future generations is if you don't leave them with a viable society. Like if your children and your grandchildren are going to go into society with, which doesn't have roads and bridges and people aren't educated and people are dying of uh, diseases and so on and so forth, yeah, then there isn't going to, it's not going to be a nice life for them. And in fact, they won't be able to uh, maintain anything like the lifestyle they have, people have now. But uh, uh, f f in order to achieve those goals, to create a viable society, public spending is uh, absolutely a necessity. Furthermore, the business community knows it. That's why they insist on the Pentagon staying high, because that's the form of public spending they like. Uh, they don't call it public spending, but that's a method whereby the general public pays the costs of research and development and so on, and basically it, you know, creates the, creates the high-tech system which is then handed over, and not just uh, engineering and so on, same true of biotechnology and everything else. Hard to find the dynamic sector of the economy where that hasn't been a major factor. Uh, so yeah, there, there is that kind of public spending, but what about the other kind? I mean, what about, you know, creating, helping, helping develop a society in which a human being would want to live? Uh, would want to live and would want to work and would want to work productively and so on and so forth. Well, that's uh, public responsibility. Now, how that in you know I, I don't I don't I think it's not a great idea to have that public responsibility fulfilled through a powerful central government. In fact, I think it's a rotten idea. But under current circumstances, it happens to be the only alternative to having private tyrannies run everything, which is far worse. So, given the options, that's the best one, I think. But uh, that means, and I think most people kind of sense this, uh, and that's or at least at some level sense it, which is why you don't have support for uh, balancing the budget. And to get back to your original question, it's why as soon as candidates have to face the public, they drop it like a hot potato. Uh, so it's only uh, the business world and its various flacks uh, who say that we have to balance the budget. Not many other people do.